Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, it is Brett Gottschall. And you and I went to grad school together in San Francisco Art Institute way back when. And since then, you moved back home, correct? So Kansas City is where you grew up, right? Homish. I actually grew up in Nebraska, right outside of Omaha, small town called Fremont. Yeah, I wanted to come back a little closer to my roots and family and all that, but not move directly back on top of where my parents are and my sisters. And I wanted to, I needed a little bigger art scene in Kansas City. Kansas City was blossoming at that time. Art galleries were really picking up and opening up all over the place. And there's an area called the Crossroads, which is kind of almost to downtown, but not quite there. And so that was, yeah, 2003. Yeah, 2003 after getting out of San Francisco. Sounds about right. We graduated 2001, yeah, right? 2001, yeah. I always get that mixed up. I keep thinking it was 2000, but 2001. Yeah. yeah, 2001. Yeah, that's an important day, important year. But we uh, moved back this way in Kansas City. It just happened to be the spot. And I wish we came here on, it was a Friday, and they have like first Fridays, art openings and all that. And it was a beautiful night, and it was jumping, and it was left an impression on me. So this is where we where we ended up. One thing actually that I always do with the with the podcast is actually I ask people sort of how did you get to basically being who you are. So like how did you find your creative path? Was it your parents were creative, some teachers, some experience in childhood? Like what brought you to this industry? Well, nobody in my family is an artist. There's a chef in there somewhere. Most of the creativity that comes out of my family is humor for the most part. So that has something to do with it. Bunch of jokers. But nobody like making things beyond like dandelion wine or, you know, something like that. <laughs> Which is good. I've had dandelion wine. Sure, some dandelion really wine. Good. Even green tomato wine. I got an uncle that he's like, give me 10 pounds of anything and I'll make wine from it. I've had violet wine as well, actually. It's lovely. But yeah, no no visual people. So I don't know. Like for me, growing up, I always kind of gravitated towards wanting to be around or look at or feel somehow beauty in whatever form that is, whether it's just, you know, looking at the sky, watching a tree in the wind, how the light hits certain things sunsets, sunrises, and that kind of natural beauty later on as I grew up just morphed into other things where there was a, you know, a beautiful car or I started collecting coins. I remember that I was like passionate about collecting these beautiful coins, but it was all about, I mean, it wasn't about, about money. It was just about all these things, you know, there's, there's some beauty here. And then it was rocks and I was polishing rocks for for weeks and weeks on a tumbler. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I had coin collection yeah, and rock collection. Yes. This, yeah. And so yeah, I think collections maybe started started me down a path to making my own things instead of finding things. It's like, man, I can I can make this. I can try to make this and how will I do it? I was always a drawer. I always drew, you know, had a little uh 
little comic uh, character that I would always draw. His name was uh, Smokey Joe. <laughs> oh, and, uh, yeah, he kind of looked like the Scream by Munch. That face, the kind of this uh, figure eight kind of face. Mm-hmm. And he had, I remember, had a mohawk and all. Anyway, earrings. It's kind of a, a punk, punk kind of a character. So yeah, I I was always uh, drawing things like that and making little flip books. Yeah, making flip books, little movies. And this is all, of course, you know, like before, before we had cameras that we could readily use all the time. I think I did have a Polaroid camera when I was younger too, but but they were never cheap. <laughs> no, 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 never cheap. Yeah, that. that package of film. So yeah, I, I started making things, trying to draw people. And uh, this is, you know, now about the time, I don't know, maybe I'm in third, fourth grade, fifth grade. I'm starting to get those tingling feelings uh, in my body about women, for me anyway. And uh, so yeah, I started, I started drawing these things and buying a magazine, you know, Teen Beat and Vogue and <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I couldn't get my hands on uh, any of those real specialty ones, but yeah, I would I would get those things, or when the like J.C. catalog would come out, or the or Sears, yeah, Sears, the Sears catalog, and yeah, I'd look through that and try to find the most beautiful gal that I could find in there, <laughs> and try to do a little drawing of that. I wish I still had those drawings. I don't know where the, what happened to them. I'm sure your mom has them in the attic somewhere. Uh, yeah, yeah. She probably looks at them every day <laughs> with pride. <laughs> yes. Look at this from the from the brassiere uh, section of the Sears uh, catalog, 1979. <laughs> yeah. For the listeners, uh, Brett and I both work figuratively with our artwork, oftentimes, and oftentimes with uh, sort of sensual or erotic undertones. Uh, yeah. It's not always so blatant or obvious, but often sort of alluding to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and this this is, you know, I've, I've thought about this and talked about this a number of times in my life. But yeah, it kind of all it all kind of comes back to those early days. Uh, and it's like searching for for beauty. And it still goes on to this day. I'm still doing it. That's such a poetic way to say I'm a voyeur. I'm a kinky yeah. bastard. You know, like it's so poetic. Uh, uh, maybe not so kinky anymore, but uh, I don't have enough energy or time. But you uh, have two two children, I understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Children gotta uh, let them find their own path. I'm not try to set any roadblocks for them. Leading out from that, though, we so I'm in Fremont, Nebraska, the small town. There's no like museums or anything, but close by in Omaha, there is the Joslin Museum. And I remember distinctly in, I think it was the seventh grade, just started uh, going to Catholic school. That explains a lot. There's more there. Yeah. So I've got, yeah, being taught by nuns and priests. And we took a a field trip to the Joslin and they have, uh, we're walking through and looking at everything. And, you know, I, I, I'm interested in art at this point, but hadn't really seen a whole lot in person. And I come into a gallery and I, yeah, the first thing I see this towering, beautiful Bougaro, beautiful pink nude. I think it's, it's called the Rite of Spring. I think it's what it's called. 
and there's little uh, little pink angel putti flying around her, but the it's so real. It's like unbelievable. You can just like the skin is like oh my gosh, it's just glowing and so right there and tangible, almost like you could feel it. And seeing that for the first time, just like just totally like flipped the switch in my head. And I always go back to that when I'm working on my own things or looking at other things to uh, get that feeling back again when I first saw that. Incredible. Anyway, right then I knew I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to I want to be able to make something like that. And here I am. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, no, I had a piece that I saw when I was in like fifth grade at the portrait gallery in Washington, D.C. And it was and it, it, it's to this day, I'm still just like this guy was insane. He was so amazing. Yeah, it was, it was this like janitor in the D.C. school system that used trash to like build a throne room to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> but wow. the devotion and the, the, the oh. utter passion to make this thing, no matter what anybody else said, was just like, oh yeah, I love that. I want that life. Yes, that's great. Oh, I love that too. Uh, yeah, from there, yeah, starting to really get serious about making things and realism and conjuring that that magic moment, that illusion. It was it. It's yeah. It was like it was like a magic trick to me. An artist is a magician who creates an illusion that blows the viewer away blows you know i don't know i, I kind of always thought about art as magic in a the most pure basic sense yeah and as long as you being the magician can continue to come up with new tricks or at, at the very least be inspired by the old ones every time you can keep doing this thing and but yeah and the passion the devotion it's all good i mean i still I still love to do a good card trick uh, with my kids, you know, show them those things <laughs> and, you know, or, you know, doing the, you pull your finger off, uh, <laughs> all those and, and their little faces are like, whoa, uh, how do you do that? How's that possible? But yeah, those moments, those are the ones that, that build those, those passions. And now you've taken an interesting sort of career track. What you've chosen to do is you, so, you know, cause some, creative people choose to work in jobs that has sort of have nothing to do with creativity in order to keep their juices, whatever, for themselves, for their free time to make their art. And some go, such as yourself, go into other industries sort of tangential to being an artist mm -hmm. that somehow then also influence theoretically your career as a working artist as well. And you're a, you are currently the senior preparator, correct? Yeah, I guess that's what the title is. Yes, it's correct. At the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, Kansas City. I uh, currently, as a preparator, I've kind of retired to doing all of the matting and framing for every uh, department. Uh, so yeah, just handling the artwork. After years of doing installation work, sculptures, paintings, big shows, you know, working with curators of our own, curators that are from other museums, setting up shows, making sure that everything's going to be safe and and good and efficient to put up a show okay well sl slow down you're like going through these big grandiose ideas so like walk us through it like so first of all how does a person even get a job as a preparator because like there's no schooling for that is there well, not exactly no early on uh, undergrad i 
knowing then by then that I you know was an artist and I wanted to immerse myself in that world worked you know as a volunteer for <laughs> for free you know for worked for free at the handful of art galleries that were in in Lincoln Nebraska at the time the University of Nebraska and I'm like oh I didn't want to I want to go and see what that side is about you know the side that's going to take an artist in and show their work which is what I uh, strove to do beyond making art. So yeah, I, I gave my time to uh, a gallery there and then that led into, they hired me like a year later to do all their, all their framing and then installing the shows. So that's kind of where it started. And I also was, you know, I was making paintings on canvases and board and all that other stuff, but I started drawing and I had all, you know, all these works on paper and, and and I, you know, you get a show somewhere and you got to frame that stuff up. So I started teaching myself how to, how to mat things and mount things and frame things. And you learn very quickly how expensive all that is. So you start making your, you start making your own frames and eventually you get kind of good at it. Oh yeah. I own my own woodworking tools and build my own frames. Yeah. 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 Cause it's a. Uh, there's there's uh, quite a markup on the on those things. Oh my God, yes, it's so uh, expensive to frame. Nothing like a good frame job. Yeah, that's kind of where that started, and I I hopped around to a couple of other galleries, worked at the university gallery, so I was gaining all that experience, and then go to grad school, and I I got a job out there before I even moved out there. I was like, oh, I'm gonna get myself a little paycheck at a gallery somewhere. And you remember the the master print gallery, Pasquale Iannetti, master print I remember gallery. the gallery. I don't remember you working there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was there the whole time for those five years or whatever in San Francisco. Yeah, hey, Pasquale, if you're out there. Hopefully you're listening. Yes, hopefully. He was a dedicated man. So, yeah, I got a, a, a job there, basically working in their frame shop. They had a master framer there that did all their master print framing and matting, learned a lot from him, uh, Stefan. And so, yeah, I kind of honed, honed the skills there in San Francisco. And then I brought that with me when, when that was all done and moved to Kansas City. So I had all this stuff, but there are still, you know, there's, we've hired people that were just passionate about it, passionate enough about it, that are like just out of high school. You know, there's no schooling for this stuff. And on-the-job training is a is a great way to, to start, too. So don't think that you have to go to college or really have uh, any real experience. You have to have no talent or skills whatsoever <laughs> to be a professor. Yeah. You're welcome to just come in. Yeah, come on in. No, no uh, every person I work with is uh, very passionate and, and uh, skilled in their, in, their own, uh, in their own ways. But anyway, that's, that's, that was my path. And... I got here and I, I started teaching at uh, Penn Valley Community College. I was teaching a printmaking class and also running the gallery there because they, they needed somebody to, to run their gallery. They had somebody that just left. So I was working on their shows and teaching. And then that just folded into working at the Nelson Atkins. Somebody reached out to me because they were just building a new building, a huge expansion, the block buildings, and they were going to be moving their whole collection from the old building into the new building, a new storage area. 
And that was fascinating to me. I was like, oh, all this, all this stuff that's in the archives is going to get moved over to and it'd be a great opportunity to see all this stuff and also to handle it and pack it and then store it, which is another uh, huge part of being a preparator. Well, that's a, that's a huge part of being an artist in yes. general. Like we have to store our stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's generally a lot more things stored than there are being shown, even in whether it's in your own house or studio. Anyway, so I, I jumped on that opportunity. Uh, somebody called and it was just like, can you come and come and help us with this move? It was just a part-time gig at first. And then that, that turned into a full-time position once everything got moved over into, into uh, the other building. And then they needed to start hanging all the shows. So I got to, I got to see and do all that, which was fantastic. Okay. So, you know, just me acting stupid as I do sometimes walk us through like a day in the life of a preparator. Like, so now I know you currently have a specialization sort of in matting and framing, but earlier, let's say in your career, like when you did whatever was, you know, deemed necessary of you, what would you have to do? Uh, you know, cause like I have my picture in my mind of what I think a preparator does. I mean, I think I know maybe 75% of it, but I'm guessing there's a lot more that I don't know. Sure. <laughs> so you know, preparators are basically the caretakers for the yarn. And uh, most of, most of the preparators are artists as well. And so there's a certain reverence towards artwork in general that a preparator would generally have. And so uh, uh, being around art and handling art is uh, comes somewhat natural, I guess you say. You, you know, you don't get uh, spooked by by how much things are worth or you know, any of that. But uh, so yeah, a preparator is a caretaker for the arts, for the uh, the artist works that come into a museum. That is our job as a museum anyway, to take things in and take care of them and show them in an appropriate way. Let's say, uh, you know, something, something is acquired by a museum or a, sh a whole show is, is coming to the museum to be shown. It will come to the preparators first. So our whole group is located down by the, by the dock where all the trucks come in with this, with these uh, treasures, they come in, we team up and get everything off these trucks. Uh, everything's, you know, usually crated up or so there's heavy equipment uh, being used, pallets and forklifts, whatever you need to, to use. Do you have your forklift driver's license? Sure do. Excellent. Yeah, we try to every year do like a updated training session, mostly about plugging the darn thing in so it's not dead when you need to use it. <laughs> So there's that, there's that you're, uh, you're working with uh, the tools that you need to take care of things. So we, art comes in, we get it, we bring it into a safe space, we unpack it, we get it onto moving uh, apparatus to either take it to a storage area, or usually if it's like a show that comes in, it'll go straight up into the galleries. And before that, we have made a big plan of where everything's going to go and who's going to be responsible for certain things. Everybody has a job. Every job is important. And so those logistics are all worked out. So that's a big part of being a preparator, just planning these things out so that safety is the first rule that you're following. 
and then also you when a, when something like a big show comes in it comes in with somebody from the other museum that the show's coming from or or the collector or whatever so you're working with a representative of that work so you're wanting to do everything just right so you're not going to you know upset anybody or have you had any situations where things didn't always go just right um Oh, nothing, uh, nothing major. No, uh, nothing, nothing seriously wrong has ever happened. You know, there may have been a, a frame or two that got damaged or minimal. That's yeah, not min- much. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like hands through a canvas or something. No, yeah. Or no. yeah. A fork from a forklift through a canvas through a exactly. crate. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Uh, no. you, you, you've been very good that way. Like, oh uh, yeah. Knock on wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, good. And, and that's 15 years now there. And I've seen very few things, especially with other people's stuff, happen. So yeah, that's a that's a great thing, and it's a testament to dedication of these all these preparators. There's eight of us, I think, eight of us that work on these things. Anyway, so yeah, get things in, make sure it's safe, get it to where it needs to be, and hang the works if if they're 2D works, if they're sculptures. We're you know preparing those areas, whether it's indoors or outdoors. Wait, I have a question along with that because I know museums have lots of security and things like this. Do you do like the security stuff also? Like the, I don't even know what they are, like things on the wires to make sure like if it gets stolen or anything, I don't even know what the security measures are, but I know there is security. Oh yeah, yeah. Security hardware for 2D works for sure. There's all kinds of ways to do that. There's some pretty fascinating new things that have come out like in the past, I don't know, five years or so. Oh, tell me. I haven't heard of anything. There's a company called uh, Takaya out of Japan. Anyway, they have some security hardware where basically there's hooks that go on a wall. Your artwork will have hooks on the back of it or D-rings, I guess they call them. But you hang those onto the, onto the wall on, on those hooks. And then there's like these locking nuts, basically donuts and call them donuts and those screw down over top of of the hooks and then you have like an allen wrench that you tighten that down onto so you can't pull the, a, a 2d work off the wall oh, that's actually that's quite interesting actually yeah no that makes sense yeah uh, back in the, the old days we used to just use the just kind of your basic picture hanging hook and then we'd either screw into the wall but most of the time it was just nailed in but you would just pinch you just pinch the the hooks with a, a pair of pliers so that you, it couldn't fall off but if yeah, yeah if you had the gumption you could probably probably pull it off the wall yeah yeah you it causing so much ruckus that it, it wouldn't be worth it you'd never get out of the building what about like 3d things i'm thinking like vases and smaller things like this i mean because i used to hear of like museum wax and stuff that supposedly was sort of there to be sort of a, a tacky surface to make it so it wouldn't fall over easily like is that still used yeah it is i mean those that kind of a thing will be mostly with smaller objects the bigger the objects get the more need for a mount comes about so we have a uh, we have a mount maker we've always had a mount maker and a long uh, tradition of great mount makers at the museum metal smiths that will wait I'm, I'm sorry wait there's a tradition of mount making metal smiths at museums sure yeah okay yeah great a a proud history (laughs) 
All right. I'd love to know where that school is. Yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can hook you up with one of those one of those guys or a gal. A lot of gals in that profession too, which is great. Sure. Uh, our mount maker right now, female mount maker to the stars. She's doing a great job uh, early in her career. She's a youngster, but she's uh, she's learning a lot and learned a lot from the past mount maker, Mr. Chris Holly. He retired now. But yeah, there are custom made mounts for almost everything not when it's a traveling exhibition a traveling exhibition generally comes in with its own stuff right its own presentation methodology they will yeah most of the time it'll come with its with their their own mounts that have been made by their mount makers or somebody else but you know, a lot of the times it'll be from stuff coming from a private collection that does not have a mount coming from somebody's house where yeah they're probably just using a you know a piece of chewed up bubble gum to stick it to something <laughs> Blue, blue tack. They're holding it up with blue tack. Yeah, yeah, blue tack. I spent some time learning how to make mounts too. That's another part of being a preparator, knowing how to how to secure something to a wall or to the floor or to the ceiling or whatever. Okay, but so in the in the higher well, not the hierarchy in the in the structure of the museum, where does the preparator sort of fall in in terms of like? So let's say the Nelson Nelson Atkins is planning their own exhibition. A curator will come up with their sort of idea for an exhibition and then sort of where does it go from there? So like, do, do they talk to designers first, then preparators, then sort of like, so how, how do you all sort of fit into the web of sort of building your own exhibitions? The, yes, the curator will probably initially, they put their list together and then, yeah, we'll probably talk to a, a designer to start thinking about how the space for these things could be which space have we used all that what gallery space uh, would be best for for that and we have different spaces museums some are dedicated to certain things then there's there's uh, fluctuating you know free spaces where they do different things anyway yeah they'll, they'll talk to a designer and kind of get that started and then that list once it's uh, kind of whittled down once they figured out hey in this space i can only put this many i wish you know i had a list of 90 things but only going to fit 45 and then yes they'll they'll have that list kind of finalized it's usually never finalized but then they'll come to the preparators like me as the framing and matting guy i'll get that list and anything on there that that needs that kind of attention you know i take care of but so there's a maybe three total meetings between me and a curator initial meetings just to go through the list and and see which ones need attention and then uh, picking out uh, the right the right frame and presentation for that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Picking out the right frame. So like these pieces don't have their own frames already. Sometimes not. There'll be you know pieces that they're pulling out of. Say it's like Japanese prints or something. They'll pull from a, a big stack of Japanese prints that are down in our, our storage area. And just for storage sake, we can't leave things framed. We use flat storage so that uh, we can we can stack them <laughs> and keep them put away, and then I'll you know maybe store the frames that they used to be in. But a lot of times there'll be pieces that have never been shown before, and so that that process starts up new. And if there's money in the budget, you can get a new frame. You can do something special, or if it's a really great piece, I'll work with a, a custom frame maker, either locally or somewhere else to do something really custom and beautiful, which is a really awesome thing to be involved in. 
so there's that. And then there's meetings with uh, you know, a handful of uh, other preparators, logistics, if there's a mount, you know, mounts that need to be made, traffic coordination, how things are going to flow. Everybody kind of has a responsibility to do something. There's a lot of a lot of pieces involved, but that's that's kind of the flow. Okay, are you per, are you per part of the discussion of like lighting and design and and sort of? I, I'm thinking about like um, conservatory, sort of like so when something's on exhibition, like I'm thinking of work on paper, like you can't have too bright a light on it, you can't have natural light, that kind of jazz. Mm -hmm. Like, do you are you the one that is involved in those kinds of discussions and, and decision making? There'll be. Uh... Uh, initially, and then maybe one other time in the middle, a big meeting with all all these people that are, will be handling all the different things, and a lot of them are, are preparators. So yeah, the the lighting crew is also part of the preparation, and yeah, they they're always, of course, there to say, hey, this you know this piece can only have you know, seven foot candles on it or whatever. And so yeah, there's. Ex a lot of expertise in lighting for sure, um, which, you know, will limit where a, a piece can go. You know, it can't be close to a window or wherever the track is on the ceiling. You got to, you know, there's, there's not tracks everywhere. It'll kind of dictate where a piece will be displayed. So yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of it. And then there's uh, fabrications where if you need a pedestal, you need a platform. That's another part of the preparator job. We have a whole fabrication shop. There's three or four. Everybody can do it. Everybody has to do it sometimes. We have three or four guys that are that are pretty top notch and and making furniture for exhibitions. I was gonna say, so you have like probably what a steel worker, a woodworker, and then a glass plexi guy, girl, and then some, some other something, some other material. I'm trying to think what else would be in part of an exhibition. Yeah, lighting. 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 Yeah. Again, to save money, try to make whatever we can make in house. So yeah, that the wood shop and the fabrication shop is constantly, constantly moving, doing things. Yeah, they put out some really beautiful work and big painting booths. So we paint all that furniture, spray booth. You know, I learned how to do that too. That's fun. Wear your mask. Oh God, yeah, that's horrible for you. Yeah, we have a nice uh, spray booth. Could probably be bigger, but, <laughs> but it works just fine. It can always be bigger. Yeah, yeah, the ventilation. But yeah, there's also that part too. There's working with conservation to control the temperature and uh, humidity. Yeah. You know, beyond lighting, some things need a, a certain kind of uh, environment. Uh, but we try to keep everything the same and constant. 50% humidity, 70 degrees. That's the magic uh, numbers for our museum. Is that it? I never knew what it was. I always knew there was a magic numbers, but so it's 50% yeah. humidity, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Throughout Not the whole Celsius. Building. That would be bad. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be bad. <laughs> so yeah, we have people that go and check on that every day. We have people that uh, are on bug, bug trap duty, make sure there's no insects uh, uh, getting into casework or you know, setting up webs behind paintings, all that stuff. Wow. Um, so that's, that's another part of being a preparator. Dusting. Uh, I daily was about dusting to say going around. around dusting, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have we have huge conversations about dust. And, and uh, at our museum now, that in the past anyway, uh, 
the number of people or how big an exhibition is, etc. People create a lot of dust. Well, yeah. a lot of that Most dust, dust is particles actually skin. are little pieces. Yes, yeah, skin. That's right. And so yeah, there's there's dusting. Uh, I usually I have my rounds too that I do, and which gives me a great opportunity just to go and look at the artwork that's uh, in the museum. But uh, yeah, every other day I'll go and dust uh, my section of things that that need to be dusted. I still clean glass, clean the the you know vitrines, the casework, anything behind glass. So yeah, that's there's another part of being a preparator, cleaning. Really? So like, so as a preparer, it is still your job to clean the glass. Yeah. And you wouldn't think so. You wouldn't no, think so. I, w- I would have thought an intern would be doing that. <laughs> Interns do do that too. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I do it for uh, exercise and just to see, see the work. Otherwise you're, you're stuck down in your little area and you never, <laughs> never get a chance to even go and enjoy the things that you've installed unless you, you know, take time take that time to do it but it's a nice little ritual every morning every other morning go and do those things you don't want like the maintenance crew great crew love you guys but they're they're not supposed to be touching uh, <laughs> touching a casework that has art in it so they have the preparators take care of that stuff I, well quite honestly that's probably just for uh, insurance purposes because like I'm, I'm sure yeah. like you you and things that you touch, you're sort of insured differently than let's say you know a, a curatorial a, a janitorial staff like they're probably insured mm-hmm. differently. So like the, yeah. I mean, that's that's a legality kind of thing I'm sure. Mm-hmm. We we do training sessions sessions uh, at least you know two times a year. For our for our own selves, and invite other departments to come in and say, "Hey, this is you know, this is kind of how if you're faced with having to to handle an artwork or, or move something, this is this is the right way to do it." So we do those those training sessions. I do set training sessions on on matting and framing and handling artwork, putting things into frames, uh, taking things out. Uh, the mount maker will do one. Lighting people also will invite people from every department to come in and experience what, what they do. So it is kind of a jack of all trades. You, you get to experience the whole, the whole realm of installing things and, and putting shows together, taking them down, shipping them, packing them. So you, yeah, you end up being a, a pretty well-rounded uh, artistic person. Okay. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. Cause like, okay, let's take your, long-term storage so let's say some artwork that you have in your collection that it it has not been exhibited in a while probably will not be exhibited in a while do you put it in a crate for long-term storage or do you have like what's the right way to store artwork for long periods of time i'm thinking 2d work paint yeah painting prints paperwork that kind of stuff not the sculpture to me that's different but i guess the answer would still be relevant so yeah however whatever kind of medium yeah so like our all of our paintings and uh photography that's framed we have uh these gigantic painting racks just basically a big big screen that is on wheels uh, and they're they're, it's, it's like you know the latest technology but they're huge they're like 25 feet high by 40 feet long. I remember you took me on a tour. Yeah. Yeah. They're, 
they're huge screens. And so there's a bank of 15 on, on this side. And then there's a space in the middle and there's another bank of 15 on the other side, but all those things would be hung on there. For, I mean, for people trying to visualize it, it's like, it's basically like a very sturdy, strong fencing, almost like a metal graded yeah. fencing kind of material. Mm -hmm. That's what basically, and it slides in and out as you need it. And so like there's, and there's a certain amount of distance between them to allow for frame depths and things like this. So they don't hit each other as they slide. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's the system. And that's the way it was when I first started. Okay. Yeah. They'll stay on those racks. If I remember correctly, they were also covered in like each piece was covered with plastic also. So dust didn't settle on it and things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be coverings mainly for, and not so much with, with oil paintings, they're pretty light past, but to keep the light away from uh, any kind of light damage, if it's, you know, long, something's going to be there forever, you're going to keep it out of the light as much as possible. Um, dust, of course, too. But yeah, like all, every piece of photography, any work on paper needs to be covered because it will fade. It will fade even, you know, with the, the little bit of light that's in there in storage. And you're always trying to shut the lights off, keep things uh, as dark as you can with still being able to work in there. But yeah, coverings on all those and labeling systems. Those are long-term storage for, for paintings. I think in, uh, in other instances, we have bins. These are like painting bins uh, where it's just like books on a shelf, but separated. We have some, some things like that with a nice padded uh, bottom for the frame to rest on. But otherwise, if you're hanging on a round or big screen like that, there's not a lot of pressure put on the frames. Try to set it up so it's not gonna cause any damage. Best case scenario with a lot of other things is they're laid flat. We also have all of our pastel collection and those those you, you wanna lay flat, gravity and pastel, don't mix that well together <laughs> after a while. If something's not on view, you want to give it a rest and lay it flat in storage. So that takes up a lot of space. Yeah, storage space is the premium at any museum. So yeah, there's that There's that part of it uh, long-term with works on paper. We also flat storage for photography, print, uh, print works, drawings. I'm sure when most people think about like museum long-term storage, they think um, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> like all those <laughs> crates going down a warehouse. Like that's what they think of because they've never actually yeah. physically been in a museum's long-term storage. So that's why I'm trying to sort of give a picture of the reality of it versus the cinematic idea of it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, we still have a, uh big warehouses full of crates, but beyond sculpture, sometimes sculpture is kept in those, but everything comes out and is put into a more kind of secure situation. So we have these cabinets, big metal cabinets uh, with locks on them and flat storage boxes. Either we'll make a box. That's another big part of being a preparator, knowing how to make a box. Really? So you will make you like, so when you have a piece of artwork that comes into the collection, you will actually like make a custom box to store it in. Yeah. 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 Most of the time things will come in uh, without a storage uh, 
apparatus. So yeah, we'll do a custom, custom made, custom fit, custom padded box or. Uh, okay, let's fet- let's fetishize a little bit because you and I like materials in this kind of way. Sure. So like when you're storing a piece of art for a long period of time, so like like now I'm thinking, I don't know, some sort of maybe organic material sculpture thing. You don't put it in foam or anything like that because that could potentially damage it also, right? So I mean like what kind what kind of materials yeah, yeah. are the right materials to pack things in? You want to use things that aren't going to break down over time. So a lot of foams and uh, and you got to you know, think about what kind of glues you're using all that but yeah a lot of cotton cotton based uh, padding wood yeah just uh, nothing that's going to emit any kind of gas and you want to uh, keep it as clean and pure as as you can you'll still use uh, some foams but those will be you know covered up in in other uh, padding and fabric and uh, say if it's a it's a vase or something you'll you know you'll make a basically like a pair of hugging arms that are going to hold this vase and maybe this arm can be detached so that you can get the vase out. But yeah, there's been some pretty, uh, pretty, pretty incredible pack jobs that I've seen over the years. People get pretty creative, you know, really form another piece of artwork almost to hold a piece of artwork. It's, it's really pretty fascinating. Oh yeah. I love Yeah. That's a, that's the, Oh, yeah, containers. There's whole stores called container stores. People just love to store stuff. That's a pretty fascinating part of the job. Trying to make something that that would, you know, sometimes you want to suspend something, even like a chandelier or something. How do you store that? So you basically you're you're making a something that that hand, that chandelier can hang from and be moved without like rattling it or shaking it. So you you're making all of these different appendages inside of a crate to, to, to kind of form fit all that so it won't move. And it, it becomes like this really strange object in itself. I couldn't imagine trying to build something to ship a chandelier. That sounds yeah. <laughs> very intricate. So that's a, that's a pretty important and interesting part of the job. Yeah, I did that for a while in my early days, but I, I didn't get too deep into into making uh, crates and uh, any real major pack jobs, kind of moved on to to two D uh, storage and packing and and then framing matting. What else we got? Yeah, get, being able to to work with artists has been really pretty great. Yeah, we just had Andy Goldsworthy do a big project at the museum. He's fabulous. I've loved his work forever, and he did a, a walking wall. Mm-hmm. For our for our museum, which started was just a rock wall, and our museum is surrounded by a natural uh, rock wall that was built back in the 30s, and it's it's beautiful still. But he went out; he was invited by us to come and do a project. So got to got to meet him and and thank him for all of the great, wonderful things that he's done as an artist, and he does all the exterior outdoor work in nature basically you've seen you know his work absolutely rivers you know and tides work. beautiful film yeah. yes rivers and tides yes go out and see that my gosh so yeah he came and brought his crew of people that work with him and he's you know he's a pretty particular guy pretty you know he's a quiet guy that wants to be by himself most of the time but i think he loves doing these projects 
But he came here and went and sourced in the out in the Flint Hills all the rock that he was going to use for this walking wall. So uh, some of us, I didn't get to go out, went out to the to the Flint Hills with him and his crew, and they they dug up all this rock out of some bedrock, and it's all like limestone, and and so there's people schlepping uh, rock from there. I think I can't remember how many tons, like. 40,000 tons of rock. Like, it's crazy. But they went out there and they camped out and they got all this rock and put it on pallets. And then semi-trucks came in flatbeds, loaded it up, brought it to the museum. And then he started building his his wall. And it's really cool because the, the wall started like across the street, kind of this park area. And he had about, I don't know, 100, 100 yards worth of wall. And they very precisely and beautifully put this wall together and it's kind of snaking snaking uh, across the landscape and and then when they would get done with the rock that they had it would sit there for for a couple months and then they they'd leave and go back home and maybe work on a different project come back to the museum and then go take rocks from the back side of that wall and just start building it onto the front go to the back pull the rocks to the front and just keep walking this wall across this park and then it, it went across the street we blo- we uh, closed down a street for two weeks because it went across the <laughs> street a lot of people were upset about that because they couldn't get to work in the, the path the, the path that they usually would take but that was cool to see this this living piece of art on the street and then it, it walked over onto our main grounds and they walked it all the way around our new building down some stairs and then in through a window into the museum. Yeah. <laughs> we still have that to this day. It's a permanent uh, fixture now at the museum. But it was alive and fantastic and got to see Andy doing his thing every day. It was really beautiful. Yeah, I saw him do a, an installation at the National Gallery at the Hershor or not the Hershorn, the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. He did one in their little atrium area. So that was my I, I saw him do that bef- way before Rivers and Tides even came out. And I was just like, what is this guy doing? Who is this guy? Because he was behind glass. So like we couldn't interact yeah. with him. And so it was sort of fun. Like there's just this guy building this amazing thing out of stone. What's going on? And He's he's very yeah. he's a fascinating man. Very fascinating. Yeah, real real down to earth. No pun intended. Seem to wear the same. Yeah, yes, <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, but yeah, uh, my kind of artist anyway. Wore the same thing every day. You know, he probably had several uh, outfits that were exactly the same. <laughs> I I aspire to that lifestyle. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have your 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 get up that you. This is how I look every day. Yes, and I owned five of the exact same thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, working with working with some of the artists as they come through has, has been pretty great. I work a lot with photography, and we've had a number of I'm you know, learning about photography through having to handle it a lot. We were given the Hallmark cards here in Kansas City. The Hall family is a big donor to the museum. When our new buildings opened, they they donated. Uh, uh, 6,500 pieces of photography that they had in their collection, which included, you know, every great photograph you could ever think of. And we're not talking about pictures from that are on Hallmark cards or something, but this is their, their collection art collection. 
And so those all came over and that's when I, when I started doing all the matting and framing. So they wanted somebody to take care of all that. The Hall family requested that there be one person to take care of all that, if not more people. So I raised my hand when that, when that happened and was able to go through all that, which was just fascinating, just fascinating. All the, uh, all the greatest photographs that, that, you know, I knew of, and then all the ones I didn't. And so it was a great uh, education on f photography and it's still going on. That collection now is like 15,000 pieces. I think wow. they're, yeah, the, the, the whole foundation continues to support that collection monetarily. And we must get in 60 pieces a month, new acquisitions. Wow. That's a lot yeah. of acquisitions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, photography is more affordable than paintings or large sculptures and stuff like that. It's true. It's true. It's true. But you'd be amazed how much uh, some things cost. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I uh, wouldn't. Got, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't. But uh, luckily for us, uh, there's uh, a great... Uh, uh, collecting uh, photography that has been gifted to us through them. So we thank them a lot. But yeah, again, storage, you get 60 new things a month. We got to find a place to put these things. Well, okay. Okay. So how do you store them? Like, cause uh, you know, there's, there's acid free this and there's, you know, the, the, the plastic little baggies do you like, do you like, what are some of the techniques for storing works on paper that are particular? Cause of course that's what you and I, uh, you know, did a long time ago. We both yeah, work yeah, yeah. on paper. So like, what, what's the work on paper? Like, uh, like, cause I keep always hearing things about, of course, acid free, everything. And of course, museum glass mm. and like all this kind of stuff. Like how important is all this stuff really? You know, in the long run, it's going to be important to have things that aren't, don't have acid in them. So yeah, we use all of our interleaving, all the boxes that are made. I do, I do buy like, you know, archival boxes that are pre-made with latches on them to store things that'll be stacked like, like photographs or uh, prints, but those are all interleaved with an acid-free paper, uh, maybe a uh, uh, mylar. In some cases I have mylar sleeves, no plastic uh, baggies like you were talking about. We don't, we don't do that anymore. It's too, too difficult to get them in and out of these baggies, but we'll have a, we'll have folders, mylar folders, paper folders Wait, as well. My, mylar, like the balloons? Uh, no, like uh, it's, it is a plastic, not like a balloon. Uh, clear, you know, a, a real thin piece of clear plastic. Hmm. So it's it's about easy access and not having to handle things too much. The fewer times you have to actually touch a piece of art, the better. So yeah, constantly washing the hands, wearing gloves. <laughs> I was about to say, how many gloves do you go through in a month? A lot of gloves, a lot of gloves. But I do find that just clean hands works great too. But you you want to be aware of all that stuff and. Sometimes wear a mask so that I don't spit on stuff. When you're looking over a photograph and you forgot that you're chewing gum or something, or you know, you don't want to you don't want to spit on a photograph or any piece of art for that matter. So you're you're looking out for stuff like that. Jewelry. I don't wear necklaces. Uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Even a tie. You know, I'll tell people to tuck their tie in when they're looking at stuff. Interesting. Okay. What about the museum glass? I've always, I've always been like, 
while I believe that it's true, I'm always a little dubious of it because of course, museum glass is like five times more expensive than standard glass. And then there's of course the middle ground. I think there's like normal glass and there's like UV glass and there's museum glass. Like what, what does it really make a difference? I think mostly it's protecting the, uh, from UV light is a big thing. So that's what's gonna fade in artwork. We try to uh, use the best possible materials that you can. And luckily they, they, they work that into the budgets and that's like a standard. The museum glass, like we use, we use mainly all acrylic. So not real glass. Acrylic for framing, even with paintings, varying thicknesses, but usually it's an eighth inch acrylic. Optium is the one magic <laughs> manufacturer company that the brand anyone that we use and that's uv protection and then uh, non-reflective which is another big thing that's they want non-reflective acrylic on everything for the best possible viewing so i'm constantly changing that stuff out there's all, all the old stock that that we've had for you know all these years you know i, I just have to set aside time every month and we switch this stuff out that stuff is, it is super expensive, $40 a square foot or something. Uh, so it, <laughs> It's nice that you work with a well-funded museum. Yes, yes, it is. It is. But uh, yeah, there's, uh, I wish there were more products like that, but uh, yeah, for sourcing anyway. But yeah, that's what we use, uh, full UV protection, non-reflective, anti-static, all that good stuff. Okay, but bear with me because acrylic, I, my background in photography, I, I, I hate acrylic because it scratches so damn easily. Oh, yeah, scratch resistant too. They have that now. <laughs> okay, good. I'm like, I've always wondered because like I wear glasses and like they can make glasses and scratch resistant, but yet it, it, trying to get it for a piece of art seems very difficult yeah. to do. So yeah. like, yeah. it's been upgraded, I guess. It's, it has been time. upgraded. It's definitely not impervious to scratches, but working at a museum with these things, uh, everybody's being as careful as they possibly can. So scratches are minimal. Those uh, scratches are going to happen generally in storage. You got to be real careful how you store them. Keep them divided and separated. I use blue board, corrugated, acid-free blue board separators in between each one. And that seems, that does the trick usually. Excellent. So if there's somebody out there that's interested in doing, uh, becoming a prepared or working in museums uh, at your sort of level, like what's something they can do to sort of get started? Would it be sort of follow your path of like just start off in galleries or are there other avenues that people have used to sort of get into that industry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would highly suggest, say, if you're, if you're uh, in school, dedicate your time to, to learning a craft like that most Universities will have a, they have a wood shop or uh, they've got a, a metal making shop or, uh, and they usually have a gallery too. So you can, you can go and work at those places and, you know, get credits for working in the gallery. Yeah. Go and do those things. Start that path. Even if you're not in school, you can, you can go and galleries are always looking for, for good help. Yeah. Go and learn the trade. Go and install a show. You got an artist friend, go and help them set up their shows. When they call or like, hey, man, can you help me get this show put up? Go do it and just get that experience. And, and you, I think you'll be surprised just how, how interesting it is, um, how fun it is. I would recommend my path for sure. Yeah, ga uh, museums, galleries, building your own stuff, making your own stuff. If you're an artist doing works on paper, learn how to be efficient like that. And then, uh, yeah, when the time comes to 
uh, apply for a job, you got these skills uh, under your belt. That's how you do it. What about your own work? I mean, we went to grad school together. Now, you graduated with what degree? Painting or printmaking? Uh, painting and drawing. Are you still producing? Uh, yes. Not quite like I used to. <laughs> I'm coming up on, what, 50 years old here? Uh, for, uh, 48. I think it's 48. I was going to say, you're what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just old. Varying uh, degrees of output. But I've always kept a studio my whole my whole career whether it was a little hole in the basement or in a garage shed yeah just always always keep a studio where you can make something um, and that's kept me making making things uh, it seems like uh, commissions have become a bigger part of my life than anything <laughs> uh, making my own work takes a back burner a lot of times but i like doing things for other people and it's a decent way to make some money when you need to I didn't go into, into art to make money. I did it for the love of it, for the, for the, the beauty, passion. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I'm still making things. Doing my, my own work is always in my head. It's always there. I've got it lined up, and I know I, what I want to do. And it's just, yeah, finding that time. Scheduling now is kind of the, the main thing. You have to schedule that time. Set that alarm. Get up. Do it for two hours, even if you sit there and do nothing. Go and... And, and be in that space and in that mindset. Sure. Well, there are a lot of people that we graduated with that aren't just simply aren't producing anything anymore. Like they just, oh, yeah. for whatever reason, I don't know, you know? And so like, you know, part of it is still like just being able to actively produce is one of those things that not as many people th that we graduated with are, are doing. So. Yeah. And I found, you know, working at a museum, being around art, I, I, you know, I, I chose to have my prof profession and my daily activity be around art all the time. And that's basically what I do. I just look at art all, all day, every day. And that keeps me inspired and validates the reason why people make art, which is to share it. But somebody's got to make it. And if you can, if you can be in inspired to make it with your job, that's a great thing. Whatever that job is, uh, just yeah, stay creative. Be around creative people and and go out and experience creative things. It'll help you make your own stuff. Lovely way to end this. Thank you very much. There you go. Yeah. All right, man. Nice little bow you put on that. That was lovely. Okay. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure.